This is episode 53 of the History of Podcast. I'm Robert, and today's episode is the history of neurosurgery. Does this mean I have to do rocket science sometime? Well, I'm glad you're tuning in, and I can feel it. Your brain is going to get a wrinkle after this one. You're already getting smarter. To start, I have the egg carton count, and today's egg carton count is 70. Solid 70. If you listen to episode 50, the history of the persistence of memory, this episode is the opposite end of that spectrum. And this one comes with a lot of words I'm going to try to pronounce, and obviously there's a plethora of procedures. See, I'm already getting practice on my big words. But I'll just be looking at some of the big ideas and innovations, and physicians who were way ahead of their time, solving problems in ways never thought possible. I'm gonna be honest, we all know this, it starts out kinda sketchy, so can't we just skip the beginning, like the very beginning? Great. For neurosurgery to sharpen its precision over time, our understanding of the brain also had to sharpen. So let's talk about cerebral localization. In other words, what parts of the brain do what? And this was way more interesting than I thought it would be. You could say some of the great brains of the world figured this stuff out. Okay, no. An ancient understanding of the brain would say that the life of the conscience is actually by spirit. A more materialist view of the brain would come around by the third century, and this was the three-cell theory. In essence, the brain is divided into anterior, middle, and posterior, or front, middle, and back. And each cell is responsible for a certain function like imagination, cognition or learning, and memory. And this theory did alright for a while, until a man from Austria named Franz Joseph Gall brought a more in-depth perspective in the late 18th century. He noticed a correlation between some people's memorization ability and the shape of their heads. Crazy stuff. He and his pupil Johann G. Spursheim continued this line of thought into phrenology, or the determining of the development of different parts of the brain based on the contour of one's skull. And this didn't sit well with the church, and Gaul was driven out of Austria only for his pupil and his followers to continue on with phrenology. And for all the ruckus Franz Joseph Gaul caused, Jean P. Florence proposed an alternative view just a few years later. He tested the anatomy of the nervous system by stimulating or removing different areas to see what they affect. Florin's work was comparably a lot more modern and was able to pinpoint the function of the spinal cord, peripheral nerves, and he even determined that the brain was divided into hemispheres responsible for different functions. And even though Florin's discoveries were still pretty vague, they opened the door to much more precise neurosurgery. In 1885, Gaul's and Florin's theories were put together when neurologist Alexander H. Bennett identified a brain tumor just by looking at the outside of a patient's head. That patient was turned over to Sir Rickman Godley, who performed the surgery to successfully remove the tumor. And this is a really big deal because, although this was not the first operation to remove a brain tumor, it was the first successful one. Unfortunately, though, the patient developed an infection and died only a month later. Two years later, in 1887, the first brain tumor was removed in America by Dr. William Williams Keene, making him the first American brain surgeon. And yes, that's his real name. If you look at a picture of the first successful operation, 
It's taking place in an auditorium with students all around, watching, taking notes. Kind of weird to think about, but it makes sense. Of course, Dr. Keene made a name for himself after his success as one of the best surgeons in the country. And in 1893, President Grover Cleveland secretly had him remove an intraaortal sarcoma, which is a thing. President Cleveland told the world he was going on a several-day fishing trip with a friend, while he was actually having a surgery on a boat. Up to this point, surgeons were just surgeons. Dr. Keene was a brain surgeon, but he was also a heart surgeon. And while a lot of these early surgeons were incredible, they had very limited resources and knowledge base to work with. But there's a man we can credit with making neurosurgery and neuroscience its own specialized field. Enter Dr. Harvey Cushing, the father of neurosurgery. Cushing spent some time at Johns Hopkins, Harvard, and Yale, when there were a lot of new breakthroughs in neuroscience. He was known for keeping some of the most detailed patient records, helping to learn more about patient recovery. And it would be an incomplete description of his career to name just one thing. He also discovered Cushing's disease, and he founded the Yale Medical Library. Just know that this was a time when the knowledge base for neurosurgery grew enough to make a field of its own. And as we move into the modern era of neurosurgery and medicine in general, things begin to really branch out. And this is when it starts getting really complicated. For a little help on this project, I talked to a real neurosurgeon, Dr. James Killifer at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. He's extremely busy, and I'm lucky to have just a few minutes on the phone with him. And he says there were a few things that had to happen for neurosurgery to become what it is today. One of the first big leaps was sterilizing the surgical equipment and everything around the surgical process. Things that made cranial surgery possible, there were really two things. One was what made all surgery possible was anesthesia, and the other was mysterious technique or sterile technique, aseptic or antiseptic technique. That's why it kind of culminated at the end of the 19th century that people started doing this stuff because suddenly everybody didn't get an infection and die um, because Lister, Joseph Lister in the mid to late 19th century was um, a student of Pasteur, and Joseph Lister was a, a surgeon, and he developed, he recognized the surgical infections because of germs, which he was the first person really to maybe not recognize it, but to make a big deal about it. And so once Lister developed or popularized the theory and technique, or aseptic or antiseptic technique, Lots of different branches of surgery could happen because everybody did die from an infection. So that, that's kind of why those early guys started branching out into cranial surgery, like I said, hard to push it. So Joseph Lister gave us antiseptics for surgery, which is how we got Listerine mouthwash. But another critical element of surgery is anesthesia. Joseph Lister developed aseptic techniques in surgery and more developed anesthesia, so combining those two, you could do more elaborate operations without everybody screaming and dying. Now, Dr. Killifer says most modern tools and techniques were in place by the time he began practicing, and there's this one really bizarre but also really ingenious procedure we got back in the 1930s 
called stereotactic surgery. I guess 30 years. They barely had it when I was training. Previous to that, if you really wanted to find a small thing inside somebody's head, back in the 30s, they invented what was called stereotactic surgery. And that's when you put a frame, a fixed frame, into the skull that was rigid, and then you then you filled the the fluid spaces inside the brain, either with air or contrast, that can be seen on x-ray, and you do an x-ray, and that would kind of give you coordinates, you know, your knowledge of where stuff is in the brain, so they could target specific places in the brain. And that's kind of where maybe robots have some application in cranial surgery. In the 60s, we got the surgical microscope. Operating microscope came into being in the late 1960s, well, in the early 1960s, but it really popular in the late 1960s and 1970s, and that kind of carried neurosurgery from like having squint to see stuff to having big, well-lit structures so you can be more precise. The microscope was really revolutionary, but Dr. Killifer says something even more useful came along, the endoscope. The 90s and 2000s microscopes are starting to be replaced by endoscopes, which are flexible and go around corners and, you know, you're not bound to a line of sight. And so, pituitary surgery, for example, where you go up the nose, we used to do it with a microscope. I think, I, I don't do it. I use an endoscope now. And with the endoscope now, since you can see around corners, you can do a lot more up the nose so we had the endoscope, the microscope, anesthesia, sterilizing techniques, and this is not to mention MRI, which was originally called NMR, or nuclear magnetic resonance, and it was invented in 1945. The name was a little bit of a problem, especially in the nuclear era right after the end of World War II, so we changed the name to magnetic resonance imaging. But of all of these things, Dr. Kellefer says not much has really changed since he's been practicing. The little changes that have happened in my career mostly just it really hasn't changed that much in the last 20 years. Um, uh, technology's gotten a little better. But we maybe do smaller things, smaller exposures. We can see a little more imaging better. Image guidance is better. So when I started, we had if you had a brain tumor, well, I was lucky enough to have MRI scans and CT scans. So you could look at the CT or MRI scan, see where the tumor was, but you still had to then look at somebody's head and kind of dead reckon where to cut. Nowadays, we have kind of a GPS system, uh, neuro-navigation. So we have a pointer and can look at a computer screen and pointed the tumor on the scan, and then we know where it is on their head, and so we can make a more precise opening where we need to be. Today, surgeons use robots for procedures requiring more precision, and plot twist, most neurosurgery isn't actually of the brain, but the spinal cord. If that isn't the most surprising thing you've heard today, then I hope you still had a good day. Until next time, stay wrinkly? I'm Robert Lakatosh. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, don't listen to the next episode just yet. 
I'd appreciate if you could take just 10 seconds to rate or write a review for The History Of. It really does make the episodes better. And if you think you have a friend who might enjoy this podcast, tell them about The History Of, their new favorite podcast, and you might just make their day. I'd like to thank you all for your gracious, loyal support. And until the next one, I'm Robert Lakatosh. Thanks for listening.